everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up, Season 2, Episode 28, our special episode on the NGM Bio Aldeferment announcement, starts now. This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. I come at this, I guess, differently than the FDA in that as a patient, for me, if I could have a drug which simply did nothing but stop this fibrosis progression in its tracks, I would really be happy because we have millions of people that are progressing and we will eventually find real treatments and we will crack the fibrosis code at some point. But I wish there their target in the short run was to simply manage my population and keep them from getting ill. There's a drug that per the trial design did not meet the primary endpoint that they chose to put it there. But again, it met the NASH resolution that it gets your approval. Now, it's an injectable drug that it has side effects that what it looks like, it did probably not as good as resmeterom's and lenifibrinor, and it's injectable. So it could be a commercial decision, but we have to make it clear that it did not not work. It meant one of the primary endpoints. The only disappointing point of information was the fibrosis regression, but I mean, the trial design was only six months. We know that fibrosis takes a little bit longer. Maybe we're spoiled a little bit with the very promising results of the early phase trial. If you had these results, three milligrams placebo, if you had them in the elafibrinor trial, everybody would be happy and the, the phase three would continue. That's my guess. On Monday morning, May 24th, NGM Biopharmaceuticals announced that the company will discontinue development of its engineered FGF19 analog, Alda Furman, for F2 and F3 NASH patients. Today, Surfing the NASH Tsunami brings you a summary of individual and group interviews with stakeholders, including key opinion leaders, patients, and patient advocates, to discuss what this outcome means for drug development and the fatty liver community. Hi, I'm Roger Green, executive producer and host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. On Monday morning, I awoke to find an announcement that NGM Biopharmaceuticals was holding an investor call starting 10 minutes from them. After reading the press release and attending the rest of the call, it was clear that the company was discontinuing their FGF19 analog aldeferman for patients with F2F3 NASH. They are not leaving NASH. The Alpine 4 trial for cirrhotic patients will continue. Nonetheless, this is an important event for a NASH community that has seen too many late-stage drug failures. Because it was Monday, we did not have time to assemble our tip panel discussion format. Instead, we held two briefer conversations with panels on Monday and Tuesday, several interviews, and sent writing back and forth. I have compiled all those results into this report on what we believe the story behind the Aldeferman discontinuation might be and the messages for key stakeholders. I am now depending on our audio engineer, the truly magical Magic Mike Wilson, to work with me organizing this into a cohesive narrative, interspersing my observations and narration with comment from the various groups and interviews, and making it sound good. Before starting, I need to thank Vlad Ratzio and Jorn Schottenberg, who joined the conversation starting at 10.15 Central European Time Monday evening and stayed for an hour, and to the equally heroic Louise Campbell, who started with 
with us for an earlier recording session at 8.15 England time and stayed with us for the full two hours until this session ended at 10.15 her time. Thanks, everybody. And also thanks to the other individuals who participated. I'm not going to read or list all of you here, but you will be mentioned on the, uh, in the write-up notes for this episode. So let's start by having Stephen Harrison, who was the principal investigator on the earlier highly publicized cohort four trial, and also this one, tell us about the trial results. It's important to talk about the study a little bit and, and put it in context. So aldefermin is a drug that's well known to anybody that's in the NASH field. It's been looked at for a couple years now, targeting NASH with fibrosis. And the early data, looking at MRI PDFF, showed very significant drops in liver fat content that correlated very nicely with changes in liver chemistry tests, such as ALT and AST. Um, that data was published in Lancet, and it prompted a 12-week trial looking at both the one milligram and three milligram dose using liver biopsy at 12 weeks to see what might happen to this group of patients with NASH and fibrosis. And it was some very good early histopathologic changes that were seen with the short duration of therapy, both on improvement in the NAFLD activity score components as well as fibrosis, particularly with the three milligram dose. And so the thought was, well, let's carry this forward to a a longer treatment duration. And so the one milligram dose did that. And, and actually that data looked very promising, was published in gastroenterology just recently. And then the thought was, well, let's look at the three milligram dose over the same time point and even drop down to a lower dose, 0.3, and bring back the one milligram dose just to see how it worked in maybe a larger patient population, but still treated for 24 weeks. So that data is what was presented in a press release today is the top-line results from the Alpine 2-3 study, appropriately named because it targeted NASH patients with F2 and F3 fibrosis. And what was publicly shared was the study design. So, you know, 24 weeks of treatment with four different arms, three dosing arms, the 0.3, the 1, the 3, and a placebo arm. A patient had to have a biopsy with F2, F3 fibrosis to get in and a biopsy at 24 weeks to get out. And multiple secondary endpoints were looked at in MRI, PDFF was obtained as well as liver chemistry tests and other fibrosis biomarkers. And so ultimately around 40 patients were included in each arm. The mean age was around 50, 53. Uh, this was an obese population with a mean BMI around 38. About 40 to 50% were diabetic and around a third, maybe just a hair over a third of patients were deemed F3 fibrosis. And, you know, we're moving through the data. What you saw was that the primary endpoint was improvement in fibrosis of at least one stage without worsening of NASH at 24 weeks. And consistent with what's previously been published, placebo response rate was 19%. You know, that's a little higher than the Regenerate 18-month trial at 12%. It's lower than the Elafibrinor trial at 22, 23, 24%. But in line with other recent studies looking at at placebo response rate on fibrosis improvement. As far as the dosing arms, there was not a dose-response relationship. If you looked at the high dose, it was 30% versus 19, and that wasn't statistically significant. However, when you looked at NASH resolution, which was a key secondary endpoint, NASH resolution without worsening of fibrosis, there was a dose-response relationship. Placebo response rate is 6%, 11 for low dose, 18 for mid-dose 1 milligram, and 22% for high dose, and that was statistically significant. Maybe more importantly, when you look at the combination of both NASH resolution and fibrosis improvement, it was 3% for placebo, 14% for aldefermin. Now, that's a key endpoint, that combination endpoint, because it drives down placebo response rates. In fact, I pulled the numbers for every other trial.
trial that's looked at the combined endpoint. We have data from Inventiva, Acaro, Simabay, and Simaglutide. The placebo response rates range from 0% for Acaro, 7% for Inventiva, 8.3% for Simabay, and 15% for Sima, a little bit higher. But it is a, a more stringent endpoint. And so those numbers actually don't, don't look that bad, uh, either for NASH resolution or for the combined endpoint. But maybe the most compelling data that we saw today was these movements in a very nice dose-response relationship to ALT, AST, Pro-C3, and MRI-PDFF. And some of them were, I would say, very meaningful changes. So you had almost a 60% change in liver fat content with three milligram. That was associated with a 51% drop in ALT, 39% drop in AST, and a 26% relative improvement in Pro-C3. What's missing here is any of the correlation data. We don't know what that PDFF meant relative to histology, whether it's NAS components, NASH resolution, fibrosis improvement. The same holds true for all the other biomarkers. So there's a lot of data that's still out there to be mined. And when you look at it at top level, it's disappointing that what we're seeing today from this six-month trial isn't consistent with what has been previously shown and doesn't appear to be consistent at top level with the non-invasive testing data that we have. I take away five key points from this entire story. I will share them now and then go back and elaborate with the eight of my colleagues. Point one, it is hard to define the results as released Monday as a, quote, drug failure, unquote, similar to what we've seen with elafibrinor or senecrivirac. Point two, these results may not have been a clinical failure, but they suggested a strategic challenge for aldefermin in F2, F3, NASH, finding a place to play where it can dominate an issue segment of value. Point three, given what we know today, there appear to be two easier paths to market than the path in the Alpine 2-3 trial. Point four, NITs were far more consistent than histological reads and appear to predict NAS reduction well. It is not clear on fibrosis whether the NITs failed, the fibrosis phase was too short, or the variability we commonly see in the reading histology results obscured a positive outcome. Point five, regardless of the details, this result is devastating to patients and their advocates. The market reaction showed that some stocks were damaged significantly, while others had minimal effect. And in the long run, this result may speak more to the emerging vitality of the market than the failure of a clinical trial. And I go back to the beginning. It is hard to define the results as released Monday as a, quote, drug failure, unquote, similar to elafibrinor or senecrivirac. FDA says it will approve a NASH drug that demonstrates NAS resolution with no worsening of fibrosis. That's the worst result this study might have produced. Kept open longer, it might have proven that a significant number of patients experienced one-level fibrosis regression. So, the trial may have been disappointing against previous trials and expectations, but this is not like earlier NASH drugs that simply did not separate from placebo. In every discussion, someone noted that aside from biopsy, these results did not look meaningfully different from the cohort four study published in gastroenterology in January 2021. So if we look at the results, the fibrosis improvement today was about 30% and the placebo was about 19%. And the gastro paper was slightly higher, was about 38%, not that big difference. And the placebo was 18%. It was not statistically different then, and today was not statistically different. So it's almost the same then. Nash resolution back in the gastro paper was 24% and 9% placebo. Today, again, remind you, 24%. Today was 22% and was 6% for placebo. And today was statistically significant. And the only difference was the combination of the two outcomes. Today was 14% and back then was 22%. Another common thread in the conversation was to consider what the NIT results told us when contrasted to the actual NAS scores and fibrosis results. Naeem Al-Khoury. 
if you look at all the NITs, they look very promising. We've been talking about MRI, PDFF reduction, and the three milligram dose, which is really the focus for us, was about 59% PDFF reduction from baseline, which is definitely above that 30% threshold. And this is basically your steatosis response. If you look at your inflammation response in terms of AST and ALT, a significant reduction in ALT, 51% from baseline with the three milligram dose. And then if you look at your fibrosis outside of biopsy in terms of biomarkers, first C3, which has shown promise in other studies, was decreased by 26%. And there's some emerging data that once you decrease that per C3 by 20-25% from baseline, that it should be predictive of a histologic response. So I feel like all the non-invasive tests looked okay. If you look at also NASH resolution, the 3 milligram, this was significantly better than placebo. I think the only disappointing point of information was the fibrosis regression, but I mean, the trial design was only six months. We know that fibrosis takes a little bit longer. Maybe we're spoiled a little bit with the very promising results of the early phase trial. Naeem's last comment reflected a common theme, that not showing a significant difference in fibrosis after six months is unsurprising. In this context, only surprising because of the earlier 12-week study. Vlad Ratziu. Those results to me are very good, except if you succumb to the conceptual mistake to think that you could see changes in fibrosis after only six months with 30 patients per hour. That, that, that's pure nonsense. It took at least 100 patients in Flint per arm over 18 months to see a, a difference. And after all, OCA and aldafermin are not so different in terms of mode of action, right? They're pretty much on the same FXR FGF19 axis. And Vlad made a different point contrasting this result to an earlier failure. I just want to add that if you had these results, 3 milligrams placebo, if you had them in the Elafribenor trial, everybody would be happy and the, the phase 3 would continue. That's my guess. These results might not have been a clinical failure, but they suggested a strategic challenge for Aldafermin and F2F3 NASH, finding a place to play. Let's look at these results in a commercial context. It felt to several of the key opinion leaders like this was a commercial decision, not a clinical one. Vlad Ratziu. The conclusion has already been reached, and I suspect it's more for corporate reasons than the clinical data on NASH itself. Mazinuruddin presents the tension between medical and commercial issues this way. There is a drug that per the trial design did not need the primary endpoint that they chose to put it there. But again, it meant the NASH resolution that it gets your approval. Now, it's an injectable drug that it has side effects that what it looks like it did probably not as good as Resmeterom, Sema, and Lenifibrinor, and it's injectable. So it could be a commercial decision, but we have to make it clear that it did not not work. It met one of the primary endpoints. But in addition to the points that Naeem mentioned, we have NITs improving, we have biopsy improving, that with the points that FDA said you can meet this or that. So it just has to be as clear as the sun. So why discontinue an indication the company could take to approval? NGM Biopharmaceuticals is a developmental drug company with a funded partnership with Merck, but no market-driven revenue stream. As CEO David Woodhouse stated several times during the investor call, the company has a $400 million plus cash position and a pipeline of exciting developmental products in ophthalmology and oncology. As we discussed in our most recent episode, episode 26, the market is likely to develop along two tracks, fast-acting potent antifibrotics for patients with later stage disease and oral chronic or maintenance medications that would prevent progression while lowering NAS scores and providing other benefits in metabolic condition. These results make it look like all the and F2-3 NASH might be stuck in the middle, a high-priced injectable drug 
with performance characteristics better suited to chronic therapy. In a more mature market, with the oral agents Mazen mentioned and the previous quote on one side, and the FGF21s on the other, this drug might have a difficult time finding a niche and instead be stuck in the middle. That would not be a cheap lesson for NGM to learn, either. A phase 3 clinical trial would probably cost in the 250 to $300 million range, requiring a commitment of two-thirds or more of the currently available cash from a company with other more obvious assets to develop. David Woodhouse made it fairly clear when he said, and I quote, Alpine 2.3 achieved statistical significance on multiple non-invasive measures of NASH at the two higher doses. That said, given the failure to meet the primary endpoint, we have decided to shift resources that had previously been reserved for a phase 3 F2, F3 NASH development program toward advancing our other programs. I continue. Besides, NGM is hardly exiting NASH. The company is continuing its Alpine 4 trial for cirrhosis, a very high-need market where they might actually get to market ahead of competitors and the trial might be less expensive. NGM has licensed a long-acting subcutaneous compound known as MK3665 to Merck for obese NAS patients. MK3665 is in phase 2B with Q4-week subcutaneous dosing. Interestingly, the primary endpoint for the phase 2B Merck trial is NAS reduction without worsening of fibrosis after 52 weeks, a standard that Alda Furman could have met easily. Given what we know today, there appear to be two easier paths to market than the path in the Alpine 2-3 trial. Looking ahead, manufacturers might consider them. If you're developing for maintenance therapy, the easier path to market may be the one that Merck has selected for MK3665, NAS reduction with no worsening of fibrosis level. Several commentators noted that Alda Furman actually achieved these results. Here's Louise Campbell speaking as a patient advocate. Can I just ask, does this bring us back, though, to trying to meet too many endpoints for a disease that's too complicated? From a patient perspective, if you look at the NASH resolution on six months, those are really good. And moving on, we would expect to see non progression of disease in Nathald and NASH is a seriously level outcome that we would want as patients. We don't want to progress to F4. And Wayne Eskridge, speaking as a cirrhosis patient and patient advocate. I come at this, I guess, differently than the FDA in that as a patient, for me, if I could have a drug which simply did nothing but stop this fibrosis progression in its tracks, I would really be happy because we have millions of people that are progressing and we will eventually find real treatments and we will crack the fibrosis code at some point, but I wish their target in the short run was to simply manage my population and keep them from getting ill. Alda Furman, you know, from a chemistry perspective, really had some nice numbers, I thought. If you want to develop for induction therapy in F3 patients and perhaps compensated cirrhotics, then the kind of trial NGM designed here is ideal, but you might miss the target. As this cautionary tale tells, that would not be an inexpensive or painless miss. And I were far more consistent than histological reads and appear to predict NAS reduction well. It is not clear on fibrosis whether the NITs failed, the fibrosis phase was too short, or the variability we often see with histology reading of fibrosis obscured a positive outcome. The knee-jerk reaction to these results is to say that NITs do not work. That's clearly not right. The question is, where do they work and how well do they work in the places where they are not as consistent? Here, NITs perform consistently in the cohort 4 trial and these results as well. Ewan Schottenberg. What's reassuring in this data set is the consistency of all these non-invasive tests 
going down in the one and three milligram group in the same way. So you feel like there must be a biological effect that's strong and endurable. Not only were they consistent, but they varied consistent with a significant decline in NAS scores. In fact, every data point was consistent between cohort four and these data, except for the histopathology in the drug groups. Given the challenges around histopathology errors, was the analysis of histopathology change accurate and everything else wrong? Wayne Eskridge writes in a note, I have little faith in the biopsy results after hearing the recent discussion of biopsy failures. If a cap of 40 is even possible now, how can we make important decisions based on that standard? Wayne also noted that in this case, the histology results in the test group flew in the face of every other data point in the study. For those who have not heard the term kappa scores used before, they reflect consistency of histopathology reads. Even the same reader, reading the same slides at two different times, can have a consistency score of 50% or lower, and consistency gets worse when you have different readers. So it might not matter, but the histopathology reader for cohort four and for this data set appears to have been different solitary reader, which could drive scores to a lower level. Stephen Harris. So here it's around 40-something patients treated for 24 weeks. The percentage of response was 38% that had a one-stage improvement in fibrosis with no worsening of NASH versus 18% for placebo. If you look at the data presented today, it's 15% for the one milligram dose and 19% for placebo. The placebo response rate is spot on, exactly what it was in the original, uh, in the previous paper published in Gastro. But there's a huge difference in drug effect. And it makes me wonder, uh, you know, again, is this is this a type 2 error? Is there an issue with the interpretation of the histopathology, particularly in light of the non-invasive test, moving in the direction that they're doing, as you were in highlight? The net result is a conundrum. In this study, NITs predicted NAS scores well, while in this phase, PDFF scores predicted fibrosis regression less well. This makes the strategy of seeking fibrosis regression for maintenance agent even riskier than it would be otherwise. Stephen Harris. Yeah, I think the angle people take is, they get excited about non-invasive markers without the presence of histopathology, trying to read through what is likely to be reported on histopathology. But when you have histopathology, that doesn't carry the same weight. So I think until we have more maturity in our non-invasive tests to actually link to outcomes, then I think we're kind of beholden to predicting histology, where histology will always trump biomarkers. That's unfortunate. Regardless of the details, this result was devastating to patients and their advocates. The market reaction showed that some stocks were damaged significantly while others had minimal effect. In the long run, this result may speak to the emerging vitality of the market, not to the continuing failures of NASH drugs. I'm very much concerned that this will have a strong negative impact on the whole field for the other drugs that are in development, for the other companies that seek investments for performing later phase trials. So I'm really concerned about that. The the NASH field did not need another self-inflicted failure. Listen to Wayne Eskridge describe in a very low-key way the significant emotional reaction that he, as a cirrhosis patient and patient advocate, had to seeing the story of the discontinuation of Alderfermin. As a patient community, we go through these ups and downs with these trials and these announcements are always kind of an emotional time for us. It takes a little while to think about it in a rational way. Slightly removed from that, here's how Mazen Nuruddin felt about his commitment to his patients when things like this happened. 
Vlad wraps to you. My heart is really with the patients. Those that they got the biopsies, those that screen failed and got the biopsy for no reason. This is my passion at the end of the day. It's no surprise where these feelings might come from. If patients were reading the investor dailies, here's a sample of the headlines they would have seen. Seeking Alpha headlines, and I quote, NGM Bio abandons an ash candidate following phase two failure. Shares plunge 47%. Investor Business Daily headline, and I quote, NGM stock crashes as NASH drug joins Gilead, GenFit, with notable flops. As Barron's broadened the scope of this perceived failure to headline, biotechs can't cure this liver disease. The latest failure crushed the sector. Of course, as we said before, the irony here is that while the drug failed against primary endpoint, there was a standard the FDA would have accepted that it would easily have achieved. In conclusion, this feels to me far more like a commercial failure than a medical one. Had NGM chosen a less ambitious endpoint, they could have gotten the drug approved, or they certainly could have gotten past this trial onto phase three cleanly. That said, when they got to market, they might not have found an easy place to play. So commercially, this is probably the right decision. The shame is that it will cast a pall on the field that the field might not deserve. I have worked closely with our audio engineer, the truly magical Magic Mike Wilson, to organize this into a narrative, interspersing my observations and narration with comments from the various groups and interviews. Some of the sound quality of the interviews was less than stellar, and Mike has had to make all that sound good. He does this every week. I don't know how he does it. He's amazing. Thank you, Mike. People were very generous with their times and schedules. Vlad Ratziu and Jorn Schottenberg joined a conversation starting at 10.15 p.m. Central Time Monday evening and stayed with us for an hour. Louise Campbell started with an earlier recording session at 8.15 in England time and stayed with us for two hours past the end of her first recording session and on through this one. Wayne Eskridge was good enough to schedule our interview twice and send me written notes two or three times. And Stephen Harrison, Mazanur Dean, and Michael Fuchs all sent written comments or edits to my draft document. Naima Corey got off an all-day flight from the Midwest to Phoenix, drove home, and immediately got on a conference call. I owe you all a debt of gratitude. That said, the conclusions and the way this is organized all rest entirely with me. I take responsibility for any errors. So with that, I wish everyone in the Northern Hemisphere a continuing beautiful spring and hope it doesn't get too hot and too summery too fast. Those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, a uh, continually pleasant autumn and hope it doesn't get too cold and wintry too fast. We all pray for India and everywhere else in the world that is still wrestling with the scourge or this uh, pandemic. And for the rest of you, if you haven't been vaccinated yet, get sure to do so. It really makes a difference. Stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you next week on the podcast. Bye-bye now. This concludes our special episode on the discontinuation of Alda Furman development for F2 and F3 NASH patients. We hope you found it worthwhile. Do you have thoughts or comments on this format? Do you have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to questions at surfingnash.com and we will answer on the discussion boards or our website. Please make sure to listen to this week's other episode previewing International NASH Day and join us next time on Wednesday, June 2nd for our first preview of this year's annual EASL meeting. The digital International Liver Congress, right here on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. 